The following message by Shane Sowers is brought to you by Central Baptist Church, Aurora, Colorado. www.cbcaurora.com uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7 is where we're going to be uh, looking at today. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses uh, 5 to 7. And while you're turning there, how much would it take for us to have enough money? Remarkably, studies show that most people, regardless of income, answer the question the same way. We need about 10% more to feel comfortable. 10% will make a difference. And whether we can earn, whether we earn 30,000 per year, 60,000 per year, 250,000 per year, a cool million per year, 10% more would be just right. So when people are asked the same question over time, uh, the study that was done at Loyola Marymount University, uh, one of the professors says, when they do get that 10%, which typically happens over the course of a few years, they want just another 10%. They get the 10% and they just need 10% more. And it just goes, goes, and he says, and infinitum. The reality prompted British uh, psychoanalyst uh, Joan Revere to make the following observation. And this is really uh, in- interesting that she says this. By its nature, greed, by its nature, is endless and never satisfied. Endless, never satisfied. But here's what I thought was really interesting. And by being a form of the impulse to live, because we, we have needs and we've got to address those needs, because it is natural to us, it is part of the impulse to live, the only time greed will ever stop is when you die. Wow. Wow. This isn't a Christian study. This is a secular study. Uh, And I believe, I think I was reading that it was uh, a study that was done at Oxford University. It is the never-ending abyss of coveting. I mean, if you really do some research and you really understand what is coveting and you look at even coveting, how it was illustrated throughout the scriptures, if there is one consistent thing we see with coveting and greed... It's never ending. It's never enough. The never ending appetite of greed. It's the bottomless pit of materialism. And yet it seems we still struggle with this very thing every single day. And because, uh, and one of the reasons why we do this is because we struggle with looking at the issue of coveting and greed. We struggle with this because we, especially in our culture today, are constantly comparing ourselves to other people. We're constantly doing this. And this is the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why that's our motivation to get more and more is because other people are getting more and more. And if other people are getting more, then shouldn't I get a little more? And so we want a little more. They want a little more. We want a little more. They get a little more. And it's just a constant, constant uh, process that happens where it's just never satisfied. In 2018, just four years ago, uh, Harvard Business School actually undertook a first-of-its-kind study, and they studied over 4,000 millionaires. So they found 4,000 millionaires. I was, I was actually shocked that there was 4,000 millionaires in this country. It feels like there's only like one or two sometimes. But anyway, 4,000 millionaires in the United States. And they asked them, how much money would it take to make them happy? And what they found was it was really, really a low, low percentage, like 10 to 13 said that they were actually happy. Millionaires and, you know, little, little, you know, less than 90% of them, all unhappy. 
And so they go, all right, what will it take for you to be happy? They left it open like that. They didn't ask necessarily how much money, but really just what would it take? 100% of them went to money. Okay, 100% of them went to money. And they said on a scale of one to 10, how much money would they need? And shockingly, they said, 26% of them checked the box 10 times more. That was the highest. Would it take 10 times more, eight times more, seven times more, five times more, down the list. 10 times more was the highest. 26% of them checked 10 times more. If I had 10 times more money, I would be happy. The largest possible option with that, was, that was what was given. 24% chose five times more. If I could just have five times more, I would truly be happy. And 23% actually said two times more. And they said only 13% of them said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with where we are right now. Amazing. Amazing. And they said the, perhaps the most surprising of them all, this, this part they said in the study was the most surprising. This answer was consistent no matter how much money they had. Because not all millionaires are the same, Right? So they said, this means that someone who actually had a hundred million dollars was just as likely as the person with 10 million dollars to select 10 times more. So somebody who had 10 million dollars was saying, I need 10 times more to be happy. And someone with a hundred million dollars is saying, I need 10 times more to be happy. It's amazing when we were looking at the studies that they were doing. And so there was an interview with The Atlantic, and it led researcher Michael Norton, and he suggested that the problem for so many millionaires is comparison. Wow. And again, this issue is not just millionaires. This issue is everybody. Comparison. Constantly comparing yourself to other people. So the question of happiness is not so much, do I have enough? He says, the question of happiness is, do I have more than the people around me? And man, if I can have more than the people around me, I'm good. I'm good. Saying that they feel like that's really what it is. And he says, so this is what happens. He says, this is a common occurrence that happens in our country today. And I didn't think about this, but I thought this was just brilliant. He says, if a family all of a sudden gets $50 million. He goes, do you know what these families do? They all of a sudden get millions. We, always, we all talk about this. If God gave me a million dollars, you know, what, what are we going to do? He goes, this, they all do the same thing. They all of a sudden got $50 million. What do they do? They move into a neighborhood where everybody has money. And one of the things they find out when they do that is they reach for the neighborhood where they can get this humongous house and they find out that everyone in their neighborhood has more money. I mean, seriously, isn't this the, like this, it's like this ongoing joke, you know, that you see, that you see unfolding here. It's like, we just got $50 million, so we move into a neighborhood where everybody's got $100 million. And we're like... Yeah, we like your new Mercedes that you bought, but it's a C-series Mercedes. Wait a minute. We just got a million dollars, and they're still talking down to me like I'm living in the projects. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you did move into our neighborhood, but you're on Smith Street. You know, you're not on, you know, Bartholomew Street. You're on Smith Street. So, yeah, you're in, in the neighborhood. You know, this is, this is what happened. I got to tell you this story. This is, this is what happened in, the, in the, uh, Highlands Ranch. When Highlands Ranch was just starting to, to build, I was just in college, and, and uh, we were having problems with dorm room stuff, and so my dad made an investment, and he got a house in Highlands Ranch that me and my friends from college would live in. Right? And so here we are living in Highlands Ranch. You know, some people are like, hey, where do you live? We live in Highlands Ranch. 
Remember this, Steve? We live in Highlands Ranch. Steve lived, he was one of my roommates. Said, Highlands Ranch. Anybody say, where are you guys? Highlands Ranch. We live in Highlands Ranch. And then we talked to an individual who lived in Highlands Ranch and says, where, where, where in Highlands Ranch are you? Oh, we're over by the rec center. Uh, I think it was Long, Longview or something like that. Longview Drive or something like that. And he goes, oh, 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 the, the, the projects in Harlan's Ranch. <laughs> we're walking around talking about we're, we live in Highlands Ranch, but people in Highlands Ranch think we still live in the projects. I was like, oh, man. It's not it's what it's like. And then so now I'm like, Dad, why'd you buy us a house in the projects? We need another one. For many of us, we still won't be happy even when we get what we say will make us happy. All the way up the spectrum of wealth, basically everyone says they need two or three times more to be happy. And it's always that way. And I'm reminded of the story. I think I, I said it here. I know I, I told the, 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 the youth or the Aletheia group this week. Um, but there was the story of this lady who grew up without anything. They, they were very, very impoverished. She grew up. And uh, one of her goals in life was to marry a guy who had money. So she married a guy who had money. And he was actually one of the top five richest men in the world. That's, that's how far up the echelon she got. This is what was interesting. You know how it, where they're talking about two times more? If I could just get 10 times more, if I could just get five times more, I'll be happy. You know with her, she had everything and had the best of everything that there wasn't any more. That's where she got, like literally she woke up in the morning wanting to acquire something. But she already had everything. And the story goes is that they say that she, uh, her personal assistant was watching and she stood looking out of the back of her house that were these gigantic walls of glass looking out over the Mediterranean Sea with her helicopter here, her limousine driver here. And the garage that holds all her, her hundreds of cars that they own and everything that they have, all, the, all they've got. And she looked out there and her personal assistant said, she said, is this all that life has to offer? That night, she took a whole bunch of pilled OD'd and killed herself. What happens when we say we just want 10 times more? What happens when there is no more. Solomon in Ecclesiastes had that same issue. He gave himself and he denied himself nothing. And in the end, he was not satisfied. And in the end, he said that there's only one thing left. Fear God and keep his commandments. When it's all done, the only thing we have is God. So for many of us who do not have a ton, we feel as if we need a ton. Then we get the ton, and we need a ton more. Then we get a ton more, and we need another ton more. And then another ton more. Another house, another car, another bigger house, another better car. And it keeps going and going and going just like the Energizer Bunny. Oh, you thought the Energizer Bunny was illustrating uh, the sale of batteries. Oh, no, no, that wasn't the purpose of the Energizer Bunny. The Energizer Bunny was there to be proverbial for our crisis called greed. That's what happens with greed. It's never ending. Greed is this small g God that's never satisfied and will never be satisfied. And yet in our culture today, we continue to worship this small g God and still serve this small g God. And in the church, oh my gosh, this is, where, this is where the sermon gets really hard. Because in the church, we struggle with coveting. It is everywhere. But in the church, we figured out a way to mask it so it doesn't look bad. 
I mean, we still, you look at some of the mega churches, I was, I was floored, went to visit one of, one of these big, large churches, and I was floored. They actually had VIP seating in the church. I thought about that for Central. Can we have VIP seating in Central? What would that look like? And which one of you guys would sit in it? <laughs> well, where's the VIP section? Oh, it's over there. Where, where you know, <laughs> where, you know, where certain people and all this stuff. Well, all, all this. I was just like, VIP seating in the church. And then they were saying that if an individual were to give more than uh, in the tithes and offerings, if there was a check that was written for more than like, I don't know, something like $10,000 or something, they got a personal phone call from the pastor. And the pastor invited them to take them out to lunch. If you did that, that's what you got from the pastor. Well, and I'm like, seriously, that's what you do? Well, because, you know, this is what we want to do. We want our pastor to actually go out and, and, and get to know the people. Oh, well, well, since you put it that way, oh, it's, that makes so much sense. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. And why is it that those that always have all this money, always within a matter of months, become leaders in the church? Oh, I heard a couple of amens. I heard a couple of amens. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. We mask it. Greed is happening. Coveting is happening. But we in the church have figured out a way to talk about it in such a way that we don't see it as greed and covening, we see it as God blessing us. We're masters at this. We're, we're good at this. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, that one, of, one of my friends, he's a pastor in Hawaii, he used to say this all the time. I think when it comes to, you know, uh, political things and, and money, when it comes to money and all that kind of stuff, the world could learn a thing or two from the church. He used to say that all the time. Is this the way, the, of the, the, the way of the world that we as Christians are supposed to be dead to? Did you know that? We're supposed to be dead to this world. But the ways of the world are still there. Are we dead to the world today? Because we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be dead to the world. And if we are dead to the world then materialism and the idolatry of coveting and greed should be a non-issue, right? Because we as Christians, we're so mature in, in the faith that we did what the Bible told us to do and we put greed to death, did we not? Hmm. This should be a non-issue. Greed, coveting, all that stuff. As Christians, we, we're not phased by those things. We're not phased by acquiring these things. We're not phased by this endless beast that, that's never satisfied called greed. We don't deal with that stuff, right? We're Christians. We're dead to this. And we put it to death. Because that's what we're commanded to do. Have we? We don't. And it continues to be a struggle. Last week, we talked about the struggle of sexual sin. Today, we will focus on greed and materialism. Let's take a look. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that it will be a lamp unto our feet. It will be a light unto our path. 
God, help us to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to look at today is the reality and the nature of greed and how we absolutely need to kill it. It's not, greed is not something that we're supposed to just control. Greed is not something that we're supposed to hide away. It's not even something that we're supposed to put in characteristic sinful prison. What are we supposed to do with greed? We're supposed to kill it. Second, the anger of the Lord is coming because of people who practiced these things. Right? So the, the thesis statement today is this. Though sin and the pattern of this world may cause us to struggle with the reality of coveting, it is the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Scriptures that will cause us to see that Christ and Christ alone is all that we need, that we will ever need, and we will find out one day all that we ever really wanted. Oh, that's huge. It's huge. So many. So many. Our brother Frank was talking about people don't believe. Huh. Right? They, they don't believe. People don't believe. You know, I was talking to an individual who didn't, who didn't believe. And he goes, well, you know, that's one, the one thing with Christianity. And Christianity doesn't give me what I need. It doesn't give me what I want. And I just said to him, one day you're going to find out that this is all you really ever wanted. We're going to find that out one day. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that you will find it out before the end. Greed. It's idolatry without the idol. So you know how, you know how like sometimes I feel like in our culture today, we're walking and, and you know, the Bible talks about idolatry. And we think that because we're not bowing down to a golden statue somewhere in your house. Right? We don't have golden statues in our house, right? Not everybody invited me to their house, so it just made me wonder. Am I, am I assuming too much, Steve Petrie? Am I assuming too much here? Okay, I'm not. I'm not assume, assuming too much. <laughs> assuming that we're not bowing down to golden statues in our houses. So we think that just because we don't have a gold statue or a platinum statue or, or a silver statue or something in our house that we're bowing down to, we assume that every single time the Bible talks about idolatry, that that's not us. We're doing our devotions, reading our devotions, and the Bible's talking about idolatry, and all we do is sit back and be like, yeah, you know those people back in the Old Testament times, they just had no clue, did they? They just bowed down to statues. Well, I don't bow down to statues. This has nothing to do with me. Well, we're seeing here, Paul is, and Timothy, they're making something very, very clear. You don't have to be bowing down before a golden statue to be an idolater. You don't. Uh, the, uh, the Greek word here is generally understood for an inappropriate desire for more. Okay, so we, it's okay for us to desire things, right? The, when, you read the, when you read the Psalms, it's so much of it. It's just how much the psalmist, David, how much they desired things, you know? What we're talking about here, what Paul's talking about here is an inappropriate desire for more. Paul used the word here denoting not merely the desire to possess more than one has, it's more than one ought to have, particularly those things that don't belong to us, but belong to somebody else. You know, it's just, I just think that's interesting how, how you put that, right? Because even, even Paul, or even Solomon was talking about that in Ecclesiastes, where he talked about uh, keeping up with the Joneses, right? We got to keep up with the Joneses. We're always looking to see what somebody has, you know, always looking to see what somebody has. You know, you look and see what you got, and then you look and see what somebody has, and you look and see what you got, and then you look and see what somebody else has, and then now you feel like you, you need to have that. You know? You, you, see, you know, especially when you start to see some of our members here in the church buying new cars. 
I look at what I have. I look at what they have. I look at what I have. I look at what they have. And then I start knocking on the Lord's door. Dun, 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 dun. I'm not going anywhere till you answer. Dun, dun, dun. You know, we, we, we start in on that. And so he's talking about how we understand the, the rendering of this Greek, how it fits within its syntax, all that stuff, and how we're supposed to understand it. And it's particularly pointing out those things that belong to someone else. Dr. Garland writes this, the haughty and ruthless belief that everything, including other persons and other persons' things, exists for one's own personal amusement and purposes. That's how we, we see greed and how we understand greed back then and how we understand it even today. That everything in this world, even people, they're here, their whole purpose in this world is for my amusement and for my purposes. That's essentially the, the spirit of that. But this is an important thing that Paul and Timothy are doing here. The list of sexual sins that they just listed off is capped off with greed. Now this follows a pattern that was very consistent in Hellenistic Jewish times, in this Hellenistic Jewish period, and in Hellenistic Jewish literature when it describes paganism. So Hellenistic Jewish liter literature will describe paganism, and you know how they would describe paganism? Paganism is that thing, those cults, those organizations, those institutions that have really bad sexual immorality and idolatry. That's, if you were a pagan, Hellenistic Jewish literature would refer to you as, yeah, pagans. They're the ones that struggle with sexual immorality and idolatry. It's amazing that, that Paul and Timothy here is using that rendering here where he's talking about sexual immorality and idolatry. It's like all of you are judging the pagan world for the things that they do. You are doing the same thing. Almost in a way where it's like, this is how they describe the pagan, pagan cultures, sexual immorality, idolaters. Paul is saying, that's how I would actually describe you. Whoa, the Colossian church, Paul and Timothy are saying that this is, this is you? He's telling them to put this stuff to death. This is, this is not how you're supposed to be living. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. Hey, to describe, you know, and we, we say, yeah, but see, Shane, that sounds really familiar. I mean, seriously, it's familiar. That's just the way our world is today. You know, I, I think about it. I was just, I was, I just remember it was one time I'm sitting there and, and we're watching some, you know, some movie. I can't remember what the movie was. And, and it, you know, my friends were like, oh yeah, it's no problem, no big deal. You know, it's all, it's all good. So we're watching it. And there was a sex scene that was put into the movie almost as if, it's, this is what it, it had nothing to do with the story. It was almost like the movie directors and everyone's going over there and being like, oh, this movie is so good. Everything is just great. Everything is, oh, we didn't put a sex thing in there. We have to pay tribute to the sex god. Here, let's take this one scene right here and let's just stick it right in there. Well, I don't know if it fits there really. That's okay. We paid homage to the God of sexual immorality. It feels like that sometimes. Like, are, are we just paying homage to this stuff? We just got to throw this in just so that we can appease the masses, to appease the culture, to pay homage? Because here's the thing. Many times in, uh, in ancient times, especially during the Greek culture, the Greek period, sexual acts were performed, illicit sexual acts were performed in these temples. And this act was uh, uh, to pay homage to the goddess that they were worshiping. And in the temple, they hired the most popular musicians like, if you were a musician and you were good, man, they hired you to come. So while all these sexual acts were happening within the temple, the musicians were playing. Ah, la bamba. Ah, la 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 bamba. Anyway, I don't know why that just jumped into my head. 
It would have probably been more like Louie, Louie. Oh. <laughs> music was playing, right? So, you know, if, if the Beatles were there, they would have hired the Beatles to come and play. You know, play in these things. So the best, the most talented musicians were having. All these sexual acts are happening, and all these musicians were playing. Another thing they did was they liked to use their potions. The, the potions. The practices that would elicit altered state of consciousness. The Greek word used to describe that Pharmasuke. Yeah. And so here's the other section of the temple where they would breathe in all the smoke and altered state of consciousness. They would drink these potions. Altered state of consciousness. Alcohol abuse was happening. Drugs are being taken. Then here in the middle... Sexual acts are happening. And over here, the band is rocking out. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) Don't ask me what that means. I'm just amazed by it. (laughs) Sex, drugs, and rock and roll was happening back then. And, and so you got a regular guy just walking by and going, oh, what's going on over there? Whoa, I love that band. Whoa, I like that. I've taken drugs before in high school, man. I like that. And orgies and all this stuff. What's happening here? Oh, this is just the worship, the worship that we're giving to the goddess at the time. Can I be a part of this? Isn't that what we're doing today? Is that what hap- what's happening today? Because here's the thing. In the end, when you look at this, they worship the goddess and they worship the God not because they loved them, but because they needed them to do for them. Ancient culture, really idolatry. In the end, idolatry really is this. I'll do this for you and you do this for me. I don't, I, I'm not sure I know you that well, Zeus, but I'll sacrifice my children for you if you give me riches and wealth and help give me victory over my enemies. It's those kinds of exchanges. Do we love that God? No. We use that God. The Colossians were experiencing, what they were doing was they're elbowing God out of the center so they could give the God of greed their total allegiance. Again, there's no statue of gold that we bow before. It's still called idolatry. It does not need a statue of gold to worship other gods. It's still called idolatry. We don't have a statue called greed that we bow before to every single day to start our day. It's still called idolatry. Why? Whatever we put our trust in, we will worship. That's the reality. Whatever we put our trust in, we will worship. We worship these things. Materialism is the true religion of thousands. And, I, and I'm gonna, I'm, here's where we're going to start getting a little bit pointed here. It's the true religions, Dr. Kent Hughes says, of confessing Christians today. And the reason why This is important to see. Dr. Kent Hughes writes, there is a sense in which covetousness is more dangerous than sensuality. So he's talking about, yeah, all the the sexual sins that's happening here that we see that he's talking about. He's saying the coveting is actually worse than these sexual sins. So what Dr. Kent Hughes said. There's a sense in which the covetousness is even more dangerous than sensuality because... It has so many respectable forms. So many ways that coveting is seen as a good thing in the church. Where coveting is seen as a good thing for society. 
Economists will talk about this all the time, even in our society. You know, some of them are talking about like, you know, we're, we're, we might be going into a recession. Some people are saying we are in a recession right now. You know, there's all these economists and stuff. And all these issues. And what, what they're talking about is just people are, are wanting to buy. People need to buy. People aren't buying. People aren't doing this. People aren't doing this, all this stuff. What do you think would actually happen to the U.S. economy if everybody woke up one day content with what they have? Oh, man. Is there anything less than a depression? Is it called bankruptcy, maybe? The sense in which, because it has so many respectable forms, we've got to figure out a way to get people to buy. We've got to figure out a way to get people to thrive. We want the church to grow. We've got to figure out a way to get people to come to church and hear about how they can thrive in life. This is real. And so he says this, so often it's the successful covetous person who is honored in the church. Think about it. It's the successful covetous person whom we honor. The, the church proverb goes like this. If a man is drunk with wine, you kick him out of the church. If a man is drunk with money, you make him a deacon. It's funny, but it's true, family. (laughs) Paul is urging the Colossian church to kill greed. We still need to kill greed. And the unfortunate thing is that it's justified in the church. Family, this is why I'm telling you this thing that's starting to be embraced by the church even more every single week, this prosperity gospel that's being projected to us through the radio, through social media, through books, through all this stuff. This is why this is so bad. It's because it will urge us to practice the most uh, disrespectful, despicable things to God in hopes that he will give us material pleasures or possessions. The The essence of it is go to God, apologize for all the bad that you've done, and God will bless you. You guys remember the story that I talked about with my wife? Go apologize to your wife and she'll cook dinner for you. You guys said that that was despicable. But we do it with God every day. And we package it in the prosperity gospel, the good news, and therefore it's okay. That yes, God, I'm giving you money. I'm giving you all this money because I'm believing that if I give you this money and I make this sacrifice, that you're going to give me 10 times more. Because that's the way you are. That's how good you are. I'm giving you all these things so that I can get. We apologize, we repent, and we worship, and we will praise, we will do all of these things just so that God can bless us. We treat our heavenly father like the Greeks used to treat their gods centuries before. No way. We're not supposed to be that way. We don't treat God that way. We're not supposed to treat Christ that way. Yeah, you make, you, make God mad, you make Zeus mad. Zeus gets mad at you because of all the horrible things you do. He takes out a lightning bolt and he, whoosh, boom, kills you. You make our heavenly father mad. You sin against him. And he sends his son to die on the cross for you. Oh, we want to continue to treat him like he's a vending machine. Give him the right tokens, and he'll, and out pops your hopes and your dreams. Giving to get, do all that just to get. Do we think our Lord is really that stupid? Do we think that the Lord is really that needy? And it continues to thrive throughout evangelical Christianity, it just doesn't go away. One of the things that I think, too, is Janine and I, 
we have uncovered something, and I'm hoping I'm challenging if you guys still listen to the radio, but what I'm challenging you to, to do, to do this test. Do you know that there's one day we're, we're driving, we're listening to Christian radio, and this has got to have been about the fifth you know, organization that comes on and say, hey, do you want to make more money? Hey, do you want to have this, this whole self-help, make more money, you know, you know, get more money this way, get more money this way, all these organizations and all this stuff, you know, uh, the, the pyramid things and those pyramids, you know, organizations and all these kinds of things that's happening, just inundated with, on Christian radio. We're listening to Christian radio, we just got done hearing a, pra- a praise and worship song and then these commercials just start. How can you be better this, better this? Self-help, self-help, more money, more money, more self, 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 help. And then we go and we listen to, you know, Cool 105, which they don't have anymore, actually. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, just regular secular radio where, you, you know, that's where you get to hear Louie Louie and, you know, all that stuff, right? And, and, and you listen to the station, and you know, you don't hear any of that. None! Why are these companies not advertising on secular radio? Why are they advertising to Christian radio? Do you know why? Because it's the Christian radio. People that listen to it are the ones that are calling and buying the services. Oh, and we as evangelicals, we don't struggle with coveting. We don't struggle with greed. And as long as this whole thing of how it is that you're going to make money, as long as it's under the umbrella of we are a Christian organization, it's okay. Some of the, I I say this, some of the Christian women that I've counseled over the years, I mean, of the 30 years that I've been in ministry now, I counsel, and, and, and a lot of times there are these, you know, beautiful women who have a lot of guys that want to marry them, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to feel that, but, you know, some of them have a lot of guys. And, and, and they're like, you know, Pastor Shane, I'm, I, I, I got like him and, and this guy and this guy and this guy wants to marry me and I got all these guys that want to marry me. What should I do? And I always say this, 100% of the time, you marry the godliest one. You marry the godliest one. That's what you do. Amen. Thank you. 100% of the time, do you know which one they marry? The richest one. Every single time they would do this and I'd literally be pulling my hair out when I'm talking to them and they're coming up with all of these reasons why they're going to go with this guy they're going to go with this guy they're going to go with this guy and I'm just like yeah but he's only been a Christian (laughs) for this long we don't know very much about him and all these things are oh that's okay you know I'm going to trust God on this there was one lady married the richest guy and two weeks later she's in my office with a black eye because he beat her up saying that he's this Christian, godly Christian guy. I said, but you knew this. And she goes, yeah, I know. I knew that he had a really bad temper, but I thought that after we got married, it would be different. Why do we do this? Why, why, why do they always do this? There was a, a, a girl who uh, went, and we were friends, and, and we went to Bible college together, and we always talked about missions, and always talked about how we wanted to give money to missions and all this stuff. Same thing, talking to her. She doesn't pick the godliest guy. She picks the richest guy. Now, she lives in a multi-million dollar mansion with, she brags about it, Shane, we got 25 bedrooms in this house. They're a family of five 25 bedrooms in this house. They got like a seven-car garage. They got, and it's full because everybody's got a car. Some of them got two cars, all this stuff. And I remember talking to her, and I'm like, what about missions? What about all the money that we were going to live light so that we could give more money to missionaries so they could go out there and proclaim the gospel? Oh, Shane, come on, get with the times. <laughs> no, thank you. Why, why does this happen? Why does this happen? And this happens all the the time. 
We got missions organizations today. I'm not going to tell you which one. Missions organizations today. Do you know I got into a, an argument? I, 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 I apologize for this. I apologize to them for this, but we got into a heated argument with the director of this missions organization. Okay? Now, I was really, really upset. Do you know what they did? They said, here's our budget. We can only support this many uh, uh, missionaries. But because we're cutting the budget, you're only going to be able to have this, and you're only going to be able to have this amount of staff. Now, there were five guys that were working in this missionary, this missions division, and each one of them had a secretary. One of them did all the work. The only thing that this secretary had to do was answer the phone because he didn't like answering the phone. So we told them, what you guys need to do is you need to get rid of your personal assistants. Have one personal assistant that all of you guys share. This is the budget cut. I'm sorry, guys. You guys cannot do this anymore. Okay, okay. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to do it. Do you know what they did? They yanked five missionaries off the field. Changed the secretary title from administrative assistant to missionary. They yanked missionaries off the field so that these guys could have secretaries. Do you care that little about these countries that don't hear the gospel that you are yanking the one person that's preaching the gospel to them so that you could have somebody answer your phone? What is going on, family, in the body of Christ? I kid you not, family, this is a true story. They yanked missionaries off the field so they could have secretaries. So yes, I, I, I went off. Tears in my eyes. I'm, I'm crying in front of grown men because I could not believe what they actually did. I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe it. I still couldn't believe it. Televangelists and megachurch pastors all over the world have bank accounts that rival Fortune 500 companies. Not individuals, companies. That these men have more money than companies. Calling on even the poorest and the destitutes, the most desperate situations to give all they have to their ministry. And why not? Second Peter told us, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 3, in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. He warned us about this. The Bible warns us about this, and still we do this. This is a big issue in the church today, greed, money, coveting, and it's being masked as this is God blessing us, this is God's thing, this is what God is doing. All of these things are happening, and we're covering it up. Yeah, you sip alcohol, we'll throw you out, but if you're drunk with money, we'll make you a leader. Shane, I know this is not good, but is it really that bad? Is it really that bad? Let me tell you how bad it is. Greed is cap, caps off this whole thing with sexual sin, and he caps it off with greed. Sexual sin's capped off with greed. And you know what the next passage of scripture says Colossians chapter 3 verse 6 Colossians chapter 3 verse 6 because of these sins the anger of God is coming oh you don't think that that missions organization is going to be judged now our God is so good our God is so good he's so loving that if they come to him and they repent, they will be forgiven. But man, family, what, do we not understand what's coming? Because of these things, the anger of God is coming. 
Oh, you don't believe that the anger of God is coming? Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself for the day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Do not be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. Psalm seven eleven. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. Luke chapter 12, verse 5. But I tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you, then throw you into hell. Yes, he is the one to fear. This is a problem. It's a huge problem that our society seems to be ignoring. And family, we as the church, are seen, it seems like we're covering it up. So many people are saying that the judgment of God is an illusion. It's just a myth. This is not the case. God declared that his judgment was coming on the Israelites. He said it. Many didn't believe it. The prophets were saying false things like there's no judgment coming. The temple of the Lord, peace, peace when there's no peace. And the Babylonians came and destroyed the Israelites. Judgment came. It was huge. It was devastating. And it's the same for us today. So some of us been saying, Shane, I get it. I see. All right. Yes, I have greed in my heart. There's coveting in my heart. There's all of those things that's in my heart. And you just told me that God is coming to judge. The wrath of God is coming to judge the people that do this stuff. And it's real. The wrath of God is coming. So the obvious question that comes up that I'm hoping that you're asking today, Shane, can we be saved from this judgment? And the answer is Absolutely. You can be saved from this judgment. Romans chapter 5, 9. Romans chapter 5, 9. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Jesus is our Lord and Jesus is our Savior. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, family, by his wounds, we are healed. And the promises continue today. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is life and there's life more abundant for us, but it's found only in one place. It's only in Christ and in Christ alone. And we have the power in Christ to overcome the lusts of the flesh. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we are dead to sin and we are alive to Christ. It is the desire for Christ that will give us victory over sin. We will be free when we love Christ more than the world. When we love Christ more than anything, family, we will be free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. For more information about Central Baptist Church, go to www.cbcaurora.com.